Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer business and other interesting fields of endeavor. I'm here in the tap room with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hey there, Maria. Bonjour, John. <laughs> Who is our first guest this week? In 2016, our first guest and his wife, Emily, founded Outer Range Brewing Company in the quaint mountain village of Frisco, Colorado. Since then, Outer Range Brewing Co. has garnered national acclaim for brewing their unique style of Belgians and IPAs. They were named a top 15 brewery in the U.S. in 2018 by Hop Culture. Five years into their journey, they announced that they would be opening a second brewery in Salonche, a picturesque town in the French Alps with friends Katie and Charles Saxic. He joins us from there today. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Lee Cleghorn. Thank you very much for joining us from France today. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Glad hey, to- thank you. Appreciate being on. Glad to uh, glad to have you guys on the show. So let's uh, let's dive right in here. So where did you grow up at? Actually, I was an army brat. I moved around a lot. Okay, um, I was born in Germany. Lived in the states, all over the place. Went to high school in Belgium, in Brussels. Oh wow! So that's that's how I got into beer. I was 16 years old, just drinking amazing beers, and uh, came back to the states for college and couldn't do the whole you know, light beer at, at parties situation after like really drinking, you know, the best beers in the world. So I started homebrewing beer. Nice. So your first exposure to craft beer, we'll call it craft beer at that was to Belgian craft beers. Exactly. Yeah. First exposure was being in bars in downtown Brussels, beer bars, drinking Abbey style beers. And I didn't know how spoiled I was because that's, that's all I knew, you know? So um, it hit me like an earthquake coming back to oh yeah back to the U.S. and and not being able to buy any of that stuff. So I mean that yeah I mean that's like on a different level. Like when like what year would that have been? That was uh, nineteen ninety nine. Oh, geez, back yeah. over and yeah in two thousand one. So I was over there just for two years. Yeah, I mean we weren't really. I mean we weren't even really in much of a craft beer expansion then until really like. 2005 or six when it kind of really started to take off so yeah belgium would have definitely far outclassed anything that we had over here by 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 a long stretch so you and emily both attended columbia business school in new york is that where you first met or had you guys actually met before that we met uh before that we were already married uh when we when we went there we were both in the army oh and wow okay um, we knew we wanted to get out. Didn't really know what the hell we were going to do. We, we knew we wanted to start a brewery one day, but we figured we'd have to like get real jobs, uh, <laughs> to pay for it. Right. But then we got to, got to business school. And, um, within the first week I was like, I'm not, I'm not getting on this career train of, of business that everybody else is doing. So we basically just used that time to build the plan, build connections and, and make the brewery happen. So did you, you, but you did finish and you graduated from Columbia's business school. Yes. Nice. Nice. I mean, it's, yeah, well, 
I went to my four years. I also have a master's in accounting, which I mean, it, it's good for business, but I no longer use it, you know, <laughs> day to day. It's <laughs> funny how all you yeah. craft right. brewer owners. and, well, and I, I mean, well, I mean, I did 15 years as a CPA, but then I was like, yeah, I've, this is torture. Let me do something else. Yeah. <laughs> in the end, Columbia Business School and accounting masters for me does help you with your business, which you are running nowadays. So out, out of you two, I mean, whose idea was it to open a craft brewery? Or were you both kind of on the same plane on that? Well, I mean, so our whole relationship was kind of wrapped up in beer. I met her at my apartment in Colorado, um, brewing beer. I had a couple of people over to brew beer and she came in and um, we got engaged pretty much right after that. So that was a quick, <laughs> quick turnaround. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so I had her, when we first met, she was cleaning bottles in the bathtub and oh, wow. you know, okay. tested her work ethic and, it, and she passed <laughs> with flying colors. Okay. So, so we always were, um, you know, we use beer as really to build community around ourselves right. and uh, it's really how we built our friend base, you know, the military was crazy. And then, we would we would use homebrew as a way to way to just vent and and relax pretty much every weekend. I brewed a lot, and um, so the brewing thing was my thing. And but she was always, you know, urging me to open a brewery, and she was always the one saying, "We need to do this, open the brewery." And and uh, eventually, you know, we did that. And so I did the beer, and and she does all the marketing and wow. and tap room, front of house, and all of that stuff. So it's a good, we have a good working setup and that we really have kind of different lanes, which really works out. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we run it. We always have. You also have really great people working for you because Kyle and Wyatt are wonderful, wonderful people that We've only met in the last probably year, but it's been a pleasure just to be around them. They're they're really good people. Well, that's great to hear. We really like our team is everything and they've been phenomenal. So how did you like how and when did you end up in Frisco, Colorado? And can you like I mean, I've been all over Colorado, but for our listeners, can you briefly describe that town? Absolutely. Yeah. So we. Emily and I met in Colorado and, uh, we always wanted to go back. I stayed in the army a couple more years after we were stationed in Colorado and, and we always wanted to go back and we basically used the brewery to do that. And we, we were just like every other, you know, front range Colorado person, which is somebody that lives in Denver or, or down on the front, uh, we call the front range just before the mountains. Um, we'd spend yeah. every weekend going up to the mountains in the, you know, the wintertime going skiing, snowboarding and summertime going up there, going hiking and camping and, so we decided to try to put the brewery somewhere in one of those areas. And uh, Frisco is a place we always went to. It's kind of like where um, it's like a support town of all the ski resorts around it. It's got, it's about an hour West of Denver. It's got six ski resorts within 30 minutes. It's where, you know, kind of cheaper hotels are cheaper Airbnbs are. So if you're a young person trying to get out there in a pricey ski season, you're probably going to stay oh. there or somewhere right near there. And, and, and just travel and, to the ski resorts and just travel yeah. to the ski resorts, take a bus or drive. And, uh, so we, we were lucky enough to find real estate there to move into as you know, like oh, real yeah. estate is pretty specific and yep. there was literally one building that fit the requirement and it was a tiny spot, 2,400 square feet. And we, saddled up on a ton of debt because uh, we were in the army. We didn't have a lot of money and, right. and um, made it happen. That's a lot awesome. of sweat equity. That's awesome. So Outer Range is actually nestled in the Rocky Mountains of Summit County, Colorado. The, you know, the brewery sits approximately at 
9,100 feet in elevation, and you're surrounded by mountains on all sides. Like, how does your unique location influence the brewery, the beer, and the brand? Yeah. Um, so we wanted to build a brewery that was worthy of that place. People have been there and are called to go there, um, you know, spend a lot of money, spend a lot of time and resources to get there. And so we didn't want to build a tired brew pub essentially right. um, that exists in a lot of those places. And so that was our, our mission from the first day is to, to brew beer that is worthy of the time and investment that people make to go to those places. And so we think about that all the time. Every time, you know, there's a, a couple up there or a family that puts money across the bar, we know that most people are stretching themselves even to be there. So we want to make beer that's worthwhile of that sacrifice they're making. Nice. Nice. Let me let me tell you, though. I mean, are you at 9,100 feet? constant we are i mean that's yeah uh, <laughs> we're at 9100 feet we boil, we boil at one we boil at 196 let me tell you for for the sea level people 9100 day in day out is that that's something else man i mean because not only does it like drop the temperature of what boil waters but just the oxygen concentration up there is a lot less baking temperatures change too. Oh, everything everything changes at a higher elevation yeah. i mean you know but that's that's crazy because a lot of the summits like you know because i skied in colorado a bunch and mountaintops can range anywhere from 11 to twelve thousand, being the top but like to sit at 9100 like for base i mean that's crazy dude that is crazy yeah it, take, it takes some getting used to yeah rocco rocco you need to go out there and run a few miles at 9100 feet see see how you see how you feel <laughs> exactly that's why the Olympic Training Center is there, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm gonna actually go ahead, so I don't screw this up. You got this because you you have good go pronunciation. I know I do, but you know, Lee, can you explain one of your favorite slogans après all day for our non-skiing listeners? Yes, I can. So uh, après all day is uh, really just embracing the culture around the mar- around the mountains and ski culture, where you know a big part of ski culture. If you're not a skier. Um, or rider is getting up early, going out on the mountain, slaying powder all day. And then you get back and you start apre. So you start drinking early or, yes. you know, people drink a lot earlier out there than, than most places. And um, usually right around like one o'clock, two o'clock, people get off the mountain, um, flood the local bars or in our case tap room and, and start, start partying. So that's apre all day. I, I'm gonna I, have to ski. I've never skied, Lee. Uh, well, so, well, my 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 question kind of follow into this is also like, also for people coming from sea level to elevation, alcohol hits a lot different at elevation. Yeah. So, it, like, if you live out there, it's like normalized. But like, if you come from Miami and go out there and you start drinking beer, it's gonna be hit you like a train. That's so, gonna hit you quick. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, okay. So, are you? A skier, or are you a boarder? Uh, I can do both. Like okay. Most people live there. Well, well, while, I, so. well, come on now. Like, I, I come from the background of skiing and lived in Washington State. My brother boards. I ski. My old man. Yeah, I he, board. He he. Uh, my old man telemarks. So he, yeah, completely different style yeah. of skiing. Yeah, that's like old school, like crazy skiing, free heel. I mean, it's uh, it's nuts. So, do you prefer runs or do you prefer the powder in the back bowls and stuff? Um, 
I prefer the powder trees. That's okay. That's my thing. I love okay. you know not being on runs. I guess is the is the is the nice thing. The, the unmarked stuff. I got you. Yeah. I got you. <laughs> how would how would you describe your beer lineup these days for like what you guys are making? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's changed a lot. When we first started. I was inspired by Belgian beers. So right. we, you know, our first goal was to make almost all Belgian beers that didn't last very long within like three months that turned and we couldn't keep IPAs on the tap board. So we made almost all IPAs for years. Um, and then since then we've transitioned, we, you know, as brewers, like all brewers now, I think we're loving lagers and we're making a lot more lagers, pilsners. And I think that's, in our more recent focus, but we do make all styles now, but I mean, it's majority IPAs. People know us for IPAs and, and that's what we crank the most of. So you have actually seen like a lot of people that I've talked to on here, like you have started to see that swing back to loggers. We have in West coast too, uh, which is great. Um, I mean, by far still it's, you know, hazy IPAs. We've got 24 taps and, most of them are hazy IPAs and nice. double IPAs. And, and that's what continues to move. But we have seen more interest in, in loggers for sure. Nice. Nice. So you are actually opening a second location where you, I'm assuming that's where you are now. I mean, not down the street, not even in Colorado, not even, you know, in the States, but rather in Solange, France, a picturesque town in the French Alps, about 5,000 miles away. How did the idea which to open a second location in France even come about? Well, I guess, you know, it was a couple of things, but um, we had always wanted to stay in the mountains, no matter what our right. second location would, would be in the mountains. And so we've thought about that for, for years and where that would be. And uh, when we were living in New York, our Emily and I's best friend couple is this French couple, Kate and Charles. And, and uh, we've kind of talked over the years about eventually doing something together and uh, a couple of years ago, we started the conversation again about maybe we can do something together in, in France. And uh, we started looking at the mountains and we found a beautiful little town that is essentially the Frisco of France. It's right outside Chamonix and Mijev and a bunch of other ski resorts. Oh. And it uh, really spoke to us. There was, you know, kind of the same vibe, same culture around skiing. Right. It's where apres skiing was invented. invented yep. So we yep. figure if we, maybe we can get better at apres ski if we go right <laughs> to the source and check it out. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we would, we started kind of testing the market a couple of years ago and got good responses. And every time we'd come over here, we'd learn something a little bit different from the European brew scene. You know, it's just a yep. totally different market. Yep. So everybody thinks a little bit differently. And so we thought, you know, what the heck? Our whole mission is about leaving the life below, like living the life you want. This speaks to our mission. Um, we've got an opportunity through a friendship to make this happen. And we lucked out and found a, a great spot in a little town that um, we're working on now. So, I mean, I guess if you had to take two of the more recognizable mountain ranges in the world, they would be the Rockies and the Alps. I mean, I, I've skied the Rockies. I, I've skied a lot. I've skied in British Columbia and stuff, but I have never skied the Alps, which has always been something I've wanted to do. How would you grade like the ski skiing levels in the Alps versus like the U.S. back in the States? Yeah, well, like all things, there's trade off. I think the terrain is 
more interesting here. It's steeper, yeah. longer. I mean, the differential between the base and the top is much greater. You know, our brewery is going to be at like 3,000 feet and oh. looks up at Mont Blanc at 15,000. Holy crap. Feet. Okay. So it's, I mean, they're just giant. And, um, but the snow in Colorado, you can't beat the snow no, in Colorado. No, it's no. so dry and powdery. So yeah. that's kind of, those are the two biggest differences, I think. So is the snow over there more wet? It's more wet, yeah. Oh, so, like, perfect, like, springtime would be, like, corn snow and stuff in the Alps. Yeah. <laughs> how how easy is it to get to where you guys are if we're flying from Miami to Paris? <laughs> or Lyon. Yeah. We go to Lyon. I don't know. Super easy. <laughs> Super easy. We're actually just, like, 40 minutes outside of Geneva. So, oh, it's okay. pretty easy to get to. Nice. Nice. So the salon location is very similar to the one in Frisco, including a Nashville hot chicken component, a coffee roaster. What other uh, like anemones with a new space? Like what will you have there? Yeah, so that is the main idea. You know, in Frisco we have we've got the coffee. Uh, we don't own that. That's a friend of ours that that does that and rents a space from us. And then the we do Thai fried chicken. And over here we were not going to do French food because we would, uh, you know, that wouldn't work. So <laughs> we figure we're American. We'll stick to that. And, right. Um, we're doing Nashville hot chicken and, uh, uh, coffee roaster, uh, that we're going to be involved with this time. And, uh, and we were going to try to have a climbing wall, but we just can't fit it. You know, oh, too okay. many, too many fermenters. So, okay. so are you guys going to brew the same styles of beers that you do in Frisco over there? Yeah, you know, we're the same company, so right, we're going right. to brew the same beers, same labels, um, you know, same people behind everything, and um, we're going to try to exchange our, our staff back and forth um, oh, dope. after okay. we open up to kind of keep some cross-pollination of the different regions. And, uh, but, you know, we'll listen to the market, too. There's, you know, IPAs are... Uh, getting bigger over here. It's not like yeah. the UK where they're crazy about it or, right. or even Spain, but um, you know, whatever people drink, we'll brew it. I was going to say like, since you had your roots in Belgian styles, like when you guys first opened, have you thought of maybe bringing some of those back while now being in France? We will for sure. I think, uh, you know, I would love to brew a French Saison in France. Oh yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That w- I think that would work. <laughs> I mean, you're right there, so why not? I mean, I also, you know, like, I want to know, like, what have the challenges been for you opening a second brewery in another country? Like, not like another county or another state, but like another country. Yeah, it has um, been pretty substantial. I think that, you know, we we would not be able to do it if Kate and Charles weren't um our French partners weren't there alongside us. There's just, first of all, just talking to, you know, banks. Um, Obviously we're, you know, have been working on French, but we're not to the degree where we can probably talk technical, technical terms around loans and things like that with, with bankers. um, Right. And not screw something up. Um, But more than that, there's just totally cultural differences, even in like ways of doing business. Like there's a, there's something that i never would have thought of. There's a, there's a, part of doing business called social capital over here, where you, when you start a business, you have to put money into an account, right? For no other reason, just to show that the business has assets. Ah. And that is forever until you apply to change it. 
public information. So you're social capital is listed for vendors to look at people that you purchase equipment from. Um, and just like being explained that concept, I was like, what That's is interesting. this? Like I did not understand what it was or why <laughs> we were doing it. And, uh, they're just, that's just one example. There've been so many things. It's been, uh, it's been challenging, but, uh, having French partners has, has made it happen. I'm sure it's like completely on a different level, having to deal with local and state and, you know, like the government styles, like, you know, like I know what we struggle with, like when we open this place and like what we look at going into a second location and stuff, just dealing with different local governments. But I'm sure if it wasn't for those French partners, it would be a massive struggle trying to get in over there. Yeah. I think it would be impossible for us at least. So, so when your friend, you know, when the French location is up and running and stable, how are you guys going to divide your time between Colorado and France? Like in a perfect world, like what do you imagine your split is going to be? Yeah. Perfect world. I think, you know, we'll, um, our, our long-term idea is to split time. So we just moved over here permanently. It's August now. We just moved over in permanently in June to get this going. And uh, I've already been back to Colorado once and we're going back again next month. So we are going to split time just to make sure that that uh, all the energy is being put into Frisco as it should be. Right. And, um, you know, that's our baby. That's the mothership. This right. is actually a subsidiary of that company. Um, so we owe it to everybody there and our customers to make sure that that is pumping along and that's going to take us just going back and getting eyes on everything that said, I mean, we do have amazing people and managers. They've known about this plan for like two and a half years and kept it secret for two years, which was incredibly impressive, like eight managers at outer range. Um, so I really got to pick my hat off to all those guys and gals for doing that. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to keep a secret for two years. <laughs> I mean, that is a pretty big ask. I mean, that's a big ask for people to you know, keep something mum for, for, two, for two years. I was yeah. telling Rocco, I don't know if you saw, but um, I guess you guys had like a small fest uh, in Frisco last year and you announced that you were opening uh, Salonche and they threw baguettes into the crowd as they were announcing this. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I yeah. wish I could have been there. That is awesome. Yeah, so you said you guys moved over there permanently. So you actually intend to become full-time residents there and just come back and, and visit. Yeah. Well, we have a, we have a daughter, so she's got to live somewhere. Like, oh, that's true. Yes. You know. so, so that kind of made us just, you know, we, we had to make a decision about where we would actually um, put down. So yeah, we're going to be here. We envision for like the next at least year and a half, two years, get everything open. We're in, just starting construction now you know how that whole process oh, goes you know it won't be done but i think we're trying to be open before the ski slopes close in 2023 20, spring so Ooh. sometime this winter is oh. is the idea um and we'll be here to get it off the ground nice. but one of the cool things that we found was there's actually a you know, a visa loophole for employees. It's, we tried to hire a Belgian brewer a couple of years ago and we spent money on his visa and tried to get him over and we couldn't do it. Um, he couldn't get the visa approved. Wow. And, um, it's just very difficult for brewers to get a visa to come to the U S to brew. Right. Um, one of the many visa issues of the U S but we, 
found a little loophole where if we have a subsidiary overseas and if somebody works if ah. in your subsidiary overseas for a year, then they can come and work in the U.S. So That's amazing. We're going to take advantage of that, hire French and European brewers and and swap them out with our staff. Oh, wow. That's awesome, man. I did, I did not know that, but that's, uh, that's pretty awesome to hear for sure. So kind of last question here. You were quoted in an article that I read saying everyone comes up here chasing a spirit. Uh, it's a provocative thought. What do you mean by that? And what are people looking for in the mountains? Yeah, um, that is what we try to provide a pathway for that. So our name out of range comes from a Kipling poem in that poem, the explorer, he says, there's something lost behind the ranges, go and find it. And I think that that really speaks to, um, you know, why we exist in the mountains, what we try to do and what we try to provide. And, and I think people are searching for something just bigger than themselves. That's what you feel when you're in the mountains. And um, you know, it's humbling, and inspiring to be around that. And that's why people come and we try to just give them a place where they can soak that all in. That's awesome. Yeah. I would agree with that, especially being in that environment and having skied a bunch. I mean, you're definitely, when you were out there, you were definitely looking for something bigger (laughs) than yourself. Even if that might be surviving the hills, if you've never skied or anything like that, it's definitely, it definitely is out there. So much to look forward to. But (laughs) Are you guys planning to do a, a, a fest in Solange? We think we have space to do a fest. So we haven't done a fest in Frisco. We just don't have the space. We did right. that thing you're referring to, Maria. It was just a big party we threw. Right. Um, but, I mean, that's but pretty, it looked pretty were, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you guys are the masters of fest, so... Uh, We'll have to get some tips from you if we do it. I well, if you, if you ever need any uh, on-site hand residents, well, I mean, I have somebody that speaks French fluently, so like, just you know, let us know. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> we'll have you guys out. We'd love to have you out. Ski season, though. <laughs> ski season, though. It's got to be ski season. Yeah, probably, probably like springtime. That way I think you won't die <laughs> from the, the cold. It'll be like not bad. It won't be too bad. I'm very tropical. <laughs> you could ski. Uh, I mean, wait a second. I don't really know the Alps situation, but is springtime skiing still kind of treated over there like it is in the States where it's like 40 degrees Fahrenheit and like people can ski in t-shirts and, you know. Oh, yeah. It's the last chance to party. You got to do it. So, oh. they, yeah, they, they're all about it over here. That's I'm looking awesome. forward to the après ski. That's awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> well, Lee, <clears throat> thank you very much for joining us today. This has been uh It's been a pleasure been to a, me big 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 pleasure very much and i uh wish you all the luck with your new endeavor and i hope it goes swimmingly and that uh you guys get launched off awesomely man all right hey thanks so much appreciate you guys having me on absolutely cheers thank you very much have a good day ciao you're listening to the beer hour with jonathan wakefield conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture our next guest left a successful career in music management to found Miami's world-famous House of Mac. First as a food truck in 2014, then as a brick-and-mortar, fast-casual restaurant. He did so with the support of the musical artists that he was managing, who recognized his passion for cooking, his unique style of comfort food. After opening three locations in just a few short years, he has garnered national acclaim not only for his food, but for his interesting backstory, which you're about to hear. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Derek Tutton, a.k.a. 
Chef Teach, thank you very much, very, very much for joining us today. Uh, I make you nervous. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> you actually live in the, you know, in the tap room. Normally, we're doing this stuff on like, you know, Zoom. So yeah, it's gotcha. good every once in a while to actually have somebody live in person. It actually brings a little more uh, friendliness and vibe to to the conversation. Got you, man. Well, you know, you're my guy, and I, I'm I'm honored to uh, be here and uh, chop it up with you. Nice, nice. So let's uh, let's take it back. Let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Brooklyn. So did you learn how to cook as a kid? I, I learned how to cook. I went to I went to vocational school when I was like 20. And I, I never even finished it. But I went for like a couple of years. Um, but I when I was younger, my mom used to buy me like all these cookbooks. I've always been like comfortable in the kitchen. Um, and then in my 20s, I was just kind of like, you know what? I want to be this, this top chef. I wanted to kind of follow it. And then my first time working in a restaurant, I hated it. My first job was Red Lobster, and it was like <laughs> I felt like I was overworked, underpaid. But the good thing, I met my wife. I met my wife. My wife was actually a server in Red Lobster, and I was a cook, and we've been married for 25 years. So I, one thing, one good thing definitely came out of that. Though, came out of that. I, mean, I mean, so early on, you had an inclination that you wanted to cook for a career. I mean, and your first job was Red Lobster. What, what were your responsibilities at Red Lobster at that time? I mean, you know, I, I was I was in the kitchen, so I was a cook. I was a the expo. I was everything, you know, as far as the kitchen. But, you know, it's like, um, you know, when you understand the dynamics of the restaurant, it's like, you know, the service. So, like, for instance, you come in, you order a well-done steak, a lobster. We get it out on time. Server goes out, drops it on the floor. Oh, I got to rush it back out. And then... You know, because basically if we don't rush it out, the customer's not happy, service don't make any money. But then they don't appreciate, like, because now I got 100 other checks I got to push out, but now I got to push all that to the side to get your food out. And then, you know, they still throw you under the bus. They still, you know, it's just. It's the kitchen. It's the, the kitchen's fault. Yeah, it's the kitchen's fault. The right? dynamic between front of the house and, and the back, back of the house, house is yeah, it's always like, It's terrible. Badly. You know, if, if you're in a restaurant business, you know what I'm talking about. But, like, I hated that. And, and. You know, and I went to culinary school, so, like, I was the guy that was always plating things. I helped them make money because I always wanted to make sure that everything looks right and it's plated right and everything. And it was just like, you know, you know, and you ever seen the movie Chef? Of course. Right. Yeah. So that was, like, one of my inspirations even okay. when I went into a food truck because that's how I really felt. It's like your hands are so tired. Like, you're like, oh, we could do this. You could, but, you know, you got to stick to the script. And, and my creativeness, I felt like creatively there was so much more that I could do when my hands were tired. So, um so, you know, I guess that's part of the reason why I had the Scarface moment one day. It was like it, you know, the two busiest days in, in, in restaurants are Valentine's Day and, and Mother's Day. And it was one of those days and the checks just kept coming. And I was like, you know what? I'm out of here. And that was that. And then so I, 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 I left from um, the food service industry and I started doing club promotions. Yeah, we we were gonna get it, kind of yeah. get into that. I mean, okay. so around that time, like you you decided to get out of Red Lobster, obviously, right? It was pretty abrupt. It, <laughs> it wasn't even really a decision. It was just kind of like I just kind of rolled with the punches, and it happened. And at the same time, a friend of mine um, used to come to the restaurant. He was a big um, party promoter, and he was like, "Yo, come over here and work with us." So like, I actually started um, doing club promotions. While I still was working at Red Lobster. So, I mean, this friend is Damon John. No, with Damon, we just shared a lot in common. Damon used to work at Red Lobster. Damon's family is Trinidad. And Damon, like, so we're born, like, three days apart. Damn. Okay. Like, so 
when we finally met and we started talking about all these different things, it was like we were in common. And I just tried to explain that to the lady when I did an interview, and she was like, oh, yeah, they used to work at Red Lobster together. Nah, but are you saying Damon left Red Lobster and started FUBU? Yeah. He, Damon, <laughs> Damon was still working yeah. at Red Lobster. Putting the work in on FUBU. Damon had five jerseys, I think. Like, he was sewing right. in his mom's um, okay. basement, and – People thought he had like all of this product, but he had like the same product and he was like recycling the same oh product. God. And but he he was from Hollis and like he had relationships with these rappers and all this. Stuff. So he would go to the video shoots, put it on people's back when they finished wearing it, take it off their back and and, and repurpose it. Yeah. People. Yeah. And like people thought it was a lot bigger than it was at at the time. And then his mother ended up refinancing a home. And so it's like a whole thing. But when we had that conversation, it was like, oh, you used to work in Red Lobster. You in front of the house. Oh, yeah. He's working Red Lobster. I was back in the house and. <laughs> But yeah, but he, but he wasn't the one that got you the gig at the nightclub prom, as a promoter. No, 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 nah. Um, it was it was a guy that used to come to my restaurant all the time. He, he actually passed away like a few years ago. His name was Dewberry, but um, uh, God bless his dead. But um, he's the one that kind of got me in, and then I started doing these promotions, and I'm like, okay, I went from a 500 degree kitchen, and now I'm on college campuses giving out passes, and you know what I mean. So um, I. I naturally took a liking to that, and then um, it naturally progressed into the music business because, like, now I'm rubbing shoulders. With, so I'm out, you know, promote, when you promote parties, it's like promote or die, right? Like, you don't promote, your party's going to flop, and you don't make money versus, like, with the music industry, um, the label pays these street team guys to go out and hang out, hang up posters and stuff like that. So like we will be out promoting parties and then I'm running into the guy from Def Jam or I'm running into the guy from, and you know, I'm like, well, I used to feel like I was in the streets more than them because you know, it was eat or die. They would just promote like when an artist was coming to town and stuff like that. So I started looking at that and then, but ironically I got into the music business on karma. Like I was outside of, um, on, back in the days there was a club on the beach. Club so, you, Amnesia. so you were down here now? I was down out here. Out of New York, down here. Okay. So let me backtrack. So I moved down, I moved to Miami. I've been back and forth between Miami and New York, my tight. Like my mother did, um, nursing, but she made like three times more, more money in New, in of New course. York. Yeah, of course. Than she did here. So sometimes we would stay down here with family while she worked in New York and back and forth. I moved back down here in 1998. Um, so the Red Lobster and everything that I worked in was in Miami. Um, <laughs> okay. all yeah. right. All right. Yeah. yeah. Wh which one? Which one? In the falls. Okay. It's not, the, it's not, it's all not right. Red Lobster all right. anymore. All right. I might've gone there at some point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's yeah. my hood. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, actually, ironically, it's a crust, some crab, crusty crab or something like that now, but they went out of business and I went down there trying to buy the building and, oh, okay. and I got outbid by these other guys. But I was like, that would be like a really cool story. Not, yeah. <laughs> full circle, man. <laughs> the full, full circle. circle. But, um, you know, these other guys came in and got it first. But, um, so I'm back in Miami and I'm at a club amnesia on the beach. Oh boy. And phone parties. Yeah, exactly. And I'm outside promoting a party and. This guy lost his two-way pages. I don't know if you know back I when Scott tell two-way pages. I'm, I'm old enough to remember. Right. And that. short story short, basically found his pager and returned it to him. And he happened to work for Uncle Luke. Oh. And okay. So when I returned the pager, he started, he he just appreciated that. And then um he started seeing me everywhere now that we met. So I'm out promoting. And he was about to move back to New York because um he had another job opportunity in New York, stuff like that. And um, basically approached me one day and asked me would I like to work a nine to five with Luke Records. And that Ooh. was kind of like my transition from 
club promotion to Luke. And then Pitbull was signed to Luke at the time. So that's when you met. That's when I met Pit. Pitbull. Right. So I, I literally started working for Luke. Pitt had like long braids and used to wear T-shirts down to his knees. And the you know, fir- Little the fir- Chico. The, the, Chico, the yeah. first time I remember hearing him, I mean, this is a long time ago, he did an ad for Miami-Dade College. Yeah, I was with him then. Yeah, yeah. I, remember that. I mean, he did like a music yeah. bit for like TV for Miami-Dade College. And I mean, that was way before he blew up yeah, or anything yeah, yeah. like no, that. Pitt used to live right down the block. Pitt used to live on um, 28th and... North Miami Avenue. It's like probably the only two. There's a house on. Right. If you go down, look on the left side. It, it, there's a house there. It's probably oh, yeah. the only house left on the block. Yeah. And then there's a. Um. He just he bought he bought he he owns both of them though. But um. Wow. Yeah. I used to come pick him up from around here and and uh. But I met him, and then I was working for Luke like maybe like thirty days, and then we went on this like fifty city tour. So like I you know I we were on tour together, and then we built a relationship, and then um, when we came back, it was like. Um, 9-11 had hit oh. and um, Luke was like everything the world was like kind of yeah. shook up like almost like pandemic style everybody was like trying to figure out what's going on so Luke was like I'm gonna shut down that was, that was September he was like I'm gonna shut down till January I just need to just figure things figure out. out and so when he shut down I started a marketing company Big Mouth Marketing and now like I had been across the country I met guys that did what I did in Chicago and Detroit and LA and so like I started a national marketing team and then, so, like, I had picked up accounts, Rockefeller, Def Jam, Bad Boy. I started working all these label accounts. And then Pitt was out of his contract with Luke. So now I'm coming out of the club with a Jay-Z record or, you know, whatever. Right. And then Pitt's walking in the club with his white label, Oye, oh yeah, or whatever record. And we ended up bumping heads. at It was a club called Billboard Live on the Beach. And I was coming out, and he was going in. And he's like, yo, Papa, I need, I need help. Like I need, and he's like, I need a manager. I had never managed anybody before, but I just had experience in the, yeah. in the business. Just, I just know how to work records and we shook hands and we rocked out for 14 years on a handshake. So let me ask you like during this whole time when you were club promoter and, and Pitbull's manager, did you still cook for everybody back then? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of like how it naturally evolved. So the, like culinary arts has always been like my, my happy space per se. Like it, it, it was always like how I find Zen. Uh, uh, even if I'm stressed, I, I, I feel like I just go in the kitchen. Even though I didn't like doing it professionally, I would go in the kitchen and just go clear my head. And um, so when my artists found out I knew how to cook, you know, like when they when they when they record, um, you go to the studio. They normally get studio budgets to order food and stuff like that to the studio. And then it started turning into like, yo, um, give give teach money. Let let teach go cook whatever if the, if the studio had a kitchen nice. and then so like it started with asap ferg and then rocky rocky and him was like um pescatarian so i would cook all this fish and crab and all stuff when pitt signed to sony like a cook for like all executives wow. so it just turned into a thing and then it started turning into a thing where like they started looking for me like forget about <laughs> for, like where's teach and then um bun b from the legendary ugk he was really instrumental which he's actually got a product right now called trill burgers and he's doing his thing with it but it's like i'm having the same conversation he had me in terms of encouragement because he's killing it right now right but he was the one that was like yo teach i know you're doing your thing with the and you're doing well and but yo if you don't at least shoot your shot with this cooking thing um you're never gonna forget yourself later on in life because he started coming out he followed me on instagram and then it started with like oh uh lobster mac 
and I made him the lobster mac, and then it just turned into like ritual. Every time he hit Miami, you know. So was he the one to give you the like the idea, the kickstart for that the food truck? Yes, Bun B is Bun B. It, it was it was 2014, and I was at his hotel. The, the Gumball 3000 right. was down here, and he ordered a bunch of food to his room. I didn't even know what it was for. He was like, "Yo, bring me blah blah." blah. I brought it all to his hotel room, and then. He called all these guys down. It was all the guys from Gumball. And then he was like, yo, just go post by the bar. I'm going to show you something. So G- Gumball 3000 is a exotic car race. It's like a cannonball run with all exotic yeah. cars. Yeah, but you have to have like. Yeah. It's not badass cars. Yeah, it's like Rolls Royces. And yeah, yeah. But it's 3,000 miles. 3,000 miles. Yeah. And sometimes it starts in Europe. It's, yeah. it's all over oh, yeah. the world. So he calls all these guys down. And then he's just like, I want to show you something. And then he comes down, they come down, he takes off the aluminum, and then they just start going crazy on order another pan of this. Who cooked up? And then he was like, <laughs> You see what I'm saying? And and then when they left, that's when he sat me down and he was like, Look, man, like, you know, you got something special. And if you don't, if you don't home this in, if you don't at least like shoot your shot and try to do your thing with this, you're never gonna forgive yourself later on in life. You're gonna and, regret that. Right. And every yeah. no that I would give him. He had a rebuttal. He was like, oh, I, 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 I like, yeah, but. And he's like, yeah, but. And, and, and we sat and talked for like 45 minutes. And at the end of the conversation, I was like, yo, you know what? You're right. I gave him my word. And so that was like my moment. I was like, I'm going for it. And then I bought my food, my first food truck on that. And then it just kind of evolved from there. But so, so what was the concept behind House of Math? Well, so when I was in the music business, we used to travel a lot, right? And so the only time where we would see each other and each other's family and stuff like that, I would do these barbecues in my house. And like, even if you go to a club, like, we'll see each other, but I'm not seeing your kids. I'm not seeing right. your wife. You know what I mean? It's like, so I would do these barbecues in my house, and then people would bring the families, like mom, the kids. And that was the only time where we would actually kind of see each other, and then we're back on the road. So I started doing these cookouts at my house, which turned into just – you know, regular occurrences. And obviously I love to cook, but like my barbecues, like you got my barbecue, I got Flo Rida, I got Juwan Straight of NBC6. I got I got all these tastemakers out of my peers, all these people from the radio stations and stuff like that that really have big voices. And they would come to my, my barbecue, and then my barbecue was like my test kitchen. So I would just, anything I wanted to try, I would just see throw it on the table and I would sit back. I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't make an announcement about it. I'd just throw it out there and see how people respond. The thing that always stood out the most was the mac and cheese. The mac and cheese was always like the talk of the town. And then E-Class from um, um, Finger Lickin' the Lickin'. Yeah. The the moment I knew I kind of had something, he came to me. He never even been to one of my barbecues, but he was like, yo, I keep hearing about this mac and cheese, bro. Like, he brought me a a (laughs) blank check. He was like, just write what you want. I need the recipe to the mac and cheese. And I was like, oh. And oh, that's when he was about oh, to open yeah, yeah. the first finger licking. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, no way. So you thought like, okay. about it. Yeah, I'm like, okay, I clearly, you know, you know, I got something. I was so so, you know, obviously I respectfully um, declined that. But it was like the mac and cheese kind of caught legs of its own and just started speaking for itself. So that's kind of where the concept from it came. I mean, I mean, it seems like I mean you you take all these outstanding versions of macaroni and cheese and made it a platform for a lot of other amazing dishes like jerk chicken, jerk mm-hmm. shrimp, Philly cheesesteak, chicken cordon bleu, beef and broccoli. I mean, how did you learn to make mac and cheese? So, I mean, was it a family recipe or was it trial so, and error, man? No. Well, so my family is Trinidadian. And so, like, in on the islands, they call it uh, macaroni pie. Okay. Right? So they, it's, it's more of a... Um, 
it's stick. It's it's like you can cut it with a knife. It, they they use a lot of eggs in it's it. It's more condensed. It's more condensed. Yeah. And then when I went to school, um, I learned how to play around with the rules, which is like a cheese okay. sauce, yep. right? But when I started playing with the rules, the creative the, the creative side of me, because I'm a music guy, like I'm, I'm you know I help dudes come up with album covers and concepts, and I help dudes come up with songs, which again that's something that I was taught to think outside of the box. So when I started playing with the rules, I'm like. Wait, but if I add this and sauce, it, it changes to this, and and then I'll just try. You know, I'm like, and you know, because the thing with mac and cheese is mac and cheese is a sacred dish, right? Oh, like, yeah. oh, like yeah. I don't know about in like, I don't, like in the black community, I could say it's. I would say, if as if not more important than the turkey or the ham or anything else on the table at any holiday. If you mess up the mac and cheese, you oh. ruin the entire situation. The whole meal. I mean, I think even with barbecue, yeah. you got to have mac and cheese. You got to have, have mac, mac and, and cheese. cheese. And, and if you if you if if the mac and cheese sucks, it's just a bad experience. Right. So, right. <laughs> like, so, so that, that's the thing, right? You got to think about the average person, like the way Abuela, your, your, your grandma or your mom or whatever taught you how to make mac and cheese, that's... What yeah. it is. Yeah. Nothing outside of that. It's like, and so like, it, it was like almost like the audacity of me to like, you're, you're altering. Change it up. Yeah. A, a, a sacred dish like that. And it's like, I did it. I tried it and it, it worked. It's like, wait, if I take the, 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 the roux and I add like some jerk barbecue seasoning. sauce and some seasoning and. Damn. You changed enough the game. Some some of them was some of them were accidents. Some of them was yeah. like I had a customer used to come and they like, oh, I want the pasta. The jerk chicken one was an accident. It was not even an accident. It was like a customer came in and was like, I I want the pasta, but I want it on mac and cheese. And I was like, wait, you want the? He's like, yeah, I, I want to. And I'm like, all right, cool, did it, boom. And he started turning into a regular, and then and then people started coming and requested, and we're like, well, let's put it on there as a, a special. Put on a special, same day sold out, added it to, then it turned into a thing. Like chicken cordon blue. Like, okay, oh, well, boy. if I add, if I, because we don't cook with any pork, but I, I use like turkey ham and I'm like, that same cheese sauce, if I add Dijon mustard into that sauce, mm. that changes. Dijon's a great additive, man. So, I mean, you got to start as a food truck. I mean, and now you got what, four? Well, we got four restaurants. Um, we would have had five. We had, we were in the Brightline train station. Right, right, right. And, um, that one, unfortunately, they they closed their doors um, when COVID, when COVID hit, hit. Yeah, and you know, we we got stuck in the middle of that. But um, is is the menu different now with the brick and mortars than it was with the food truck? Yeah, because there's a lot more you th- can you do. know. There's a lot more we can do um, with the menu, but it's, it also varies in location. Like um, Winwood probably has the biggest menu, right? Um. And then North Miami Beach probably has more of like an express menu. It has a lot of stuff, but right up by my house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like the thing is, like, you know, our our staple is mac and cheese, obviously, right? But you know, um What else the, do you do though? The well, wings. We, yeah, the wings. <laughs> the lemon pepper wings. So so here's the thing, right? So people I mean, now you're messing with another thing. Like wings is Yeah. But everybody don't do wings because you know, Miami, they like the wings crispy on the outside, juicy yeah. on the inside, seasoned. Right. A lot of people don't get wings right. Uh-uh. No. I don't know how you no. mess it up, but some people don't. But, <laughs> um, but, but here's a, here's the beauty of mac and cheese, right? Like we we're we're teaching, we're reteaching people how to consume mac and cheese because traditionally mac and cheese is considered a side dish, yep. right? And we're selling mac and cheese as an entree. But the beauty in that is 
because people will order a, a, a big old thing of mac and cheese, an entree, and they can't finish it. But psychologically, they're like, I need to order some wings or I need to order something else with this because how am I going to just eat mac and cheese by itself? But right. the mac and cheese by itself is filling. So the average person comes in and they'll buy jerk chicken mac and cheese, lemon pepper wings, cornbread, Ooh. and a couple of fresh right. squeezed lemonades. Right. Hold on. How do you make your cornbread? How do I make my cornbread? No, I mean, like, it, it, I mean, John, John I'm, a, I'm also... a stickler, man. I'm from the South. All right. You know, I was born in Mississippi. Okay. My, my grandparents from North Carolina, uh, just all from the South. So sweet or, like, not sweet cornbread? I, we, I make sweet cornbread, but then I also, sometimes I do, like, a jalapeno cheddar. Okay. I got kind of like it, a Texas kind of mix. Yeah, yeah but yeah. the the cornbread the cornbread is flying off the shelves, man. Like we, we sell okay. a lot of. I love cornbread, but <laughs> but but the average person. So you know, we we do a lot of wings, but then we also do the chicken and waffles. We got the jerk chicken pastas. We got pizzas. We have we even have like a baked spaghetti with turkey meatballs. We I have, mean, you're running the gamut here now. Yeah, all right. And so it's you know, and we got we have vegan options. We got okay. veggie burger. We got uh, vegan mac and cheese. Um, so you know, the idea is like you know we wanted to have. Nobody's going to eat mac and cheese, just mac and cheese every day. So we wanted to create something that it's a broad. So even if, like, you had mac and cheese the other day, you can still come here two days later and order chicken and waffles or order uh, something else. Have a pizza. Yeah, and yeah. we have salads, which probably don't sell. You know, people don't come to <laughs> us for salads. We're with a cheat day. So, like, you know, sometimes we sell salads. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, mac and cheese is just an amazing thing, man, because there is no genre, right? Like, it's so White. versatile. It's everybody eats mac and cheese. White, black, pink, purple, green, young, yeah. old, whoever. There's it's it's just a thing. And and you know, like it's almost like we found lightning in a bottle. Right? Would you compare it to what you got now with mac and cheese to like what you said earlier with trying to find that fit in and you know what you had before anybody else did with right. Pitbull, and now you got this with mac and cheese. Yeah, it definitely feels, and because I've been on that, I've been on that ride a few times with different right. um, brands and seen them grow. And I've been part of ones that were special and took off, and I've been part of ones that were like cool and it had a spark and it went away. This is definitely special. Like, right. you know, regardless of what kind of adversity you hit or whatever, it's just like, you know, it's special. So you just got to keep going because you know that you have. It's like, I know I have lightning in the bottle right now. Undoubtedly. You, I, I know for sure. Do you all do catering for like Thanksgiving and Christmas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're actually, we're closed on Thanksgiving, but all we do is catering. Okay. So like we 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 do pre-orders for Thanksgiving. So the trays of mac and cheese. Yeah, so like we become the staple out here cornbread. for like cornbread. Everybody's faking it. They acting like they big. It's cool. Yeah. Nah, nah, it's all right. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> That's Chef T. <laughs> They're walking yeah. in with the pan and it's nice. like okay. Yeah, I made this. Yeah, yes. it's cool. It's nice. cool. So I got one last question for you, man. What's next? Um. So I want to grow at a rate that I can protect the integrity of my brand. The quality. Um, yeah, else. like yeah. I just don't want to compromise that. So like I get a lot of people that approach me about franchising. I get a lot of people that approach me about you know just doing a lot of things. Yeah. But sometimes less is more. Um, and but but you know there are people that did it right. Like you know like I, I always use Chick Fil A as a um, as a reference. Like I don't care. I've been Chick Fil A from here to you know, and it's quality's like, all the same. It's always quality is always great, and it's always just a great experience, right? Good service, like, yeah, yeah. So they figured out a way you know, to, to make that part of their yep. culture. Yep. And I want to create a culture 
that I can grow. Um, and it, it just, it's just about having the right people, having the right teams. And, and, and so with that, I just don't want to put the bag before the integrity of the brand. So, um, lemonade next. Lem- lemonade, lemonade is definitely in the pipeline. And then, um, manufacturing my lemonade, manufacturing, distributing my lemonade. And then that's, I'm using that as a lead and then following up behind that with, um, different variations of mac and cheese. Are you thinking about like putting it in like the frozen section and like doing that, I, or what do you think? So I like the um, you talking about the mac and cheese. Yeah, I like the refrigerated section okay. a little bit better. Like yeah. I don't the frozen, the frozen ones. Like you know, yeah. I'm not gonna say any names, anything like no, that. But the, the frozen <laughs> ones, um, they don't really stand out. Yeah, like I, I think we have more of a premium product, and I think Should it needs be refrigerated. To, yeah. It needs to be refrigerated. Okay. So that's the that's that's the next steps god awesome, willing man. awesome well we uh wish you all the luck in the world man and i really uh, appreciate you guys thank you very much for stopping by we really appreciate you brother thank you man i appreciate and, uh, it thank you for having me cheers man cheers yeah that's it for this week i'd like to thank our guests lee cleghorn and Derek turton our co-host maria cabre our producer rocco riggio and our editor brian o'connell thanks for listening you can catch us each friday at 7 p.m eastern time on business radio 132 or anytime on the series xm app or wherever you listen to podcasts Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real.